Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 4, Chapter 14 of Our Mutual Friend This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens Book 4 a turning. Chapter fourteen. Checkmate to the friendly move. Mr. and Mrs. John Harmon had so timed their taking possession of their rightful name and their London house, that the event befell on the very day when the last wagon-load of the last mound was driven out at the gates of Boffin's Bower. As it jolted away, Mr. Wegg felt that the last load was correspondingly removed from his mind, and hailed the auspicious season when that black sheep, Boffin, was to be closely sheared. Over the whole slow process of levelling the mounds, Silas had kept watch with rapacious eyes. But, eyes no less rapacious, had watched the growth of the mounds in years bygone, and had vigilantly sifted the dust of which they were composed. No valuables turned up. How should there be any? seeing that the old hard jailer of Harmony Jail had coined every waif and stray into money long before. Though disappointed by this bare result, Mr. Wegg felt too sensibly relieved by the close of the labour to grumble to any great extent. A foreman representative of the dust-contractors, purchasers of the mounds, had worn Mr. Wegg down to skin and bone. This supervisor of the proceedings, asserting his employer's rights, to cart off by daylight, nightlight, torchlight, when they would, must have been the death of Silas if the work had lasted much longer. Seeming never to need sleep himself, he would reappear with a tied-up broken head in fantail hat and velveteen smalls, like an accursed goblin, at the most unholy and untimely hours. Tired out by keeping close ward over a long day's work in fog and rain, Silas would have just crawled to bed and be dozing, when a horrid shake and rumble under his pillow would announce an approaching train of carts, escorted by this demon of unrest, to fall to work again. At another time he would be rumbled up out of his soundest sleep in the dead of the night, at another would be kept at his post eight and forty hours on end. The more his persecutor besought him not to trouble himself to turn out, the more suspicious was the crafty wag that indications had been observed of something hidden somewhere, and that attempts were on foot to circumvent him. So continually broken was his rest through these means, that he led the life of having wagered to keep ten thousand dog-watches in ten thousand hours, and looked piteously upon himself as always getting up and yet never going to bed. So gaunt and haggard had he grown at last, that his wooden leg showed disproportionate, and presented a thriving appearance in contrast to the rest of his plagued body, which might almost have been termed chubby. However, Wegg's comfort was that all his disagreeables were now over, and that he was immediately coming into his property. Of late, the grindstone did undoubtedly appear to have been whirling at his own nose rather than Boffin's, but Boffin's nose was now to be sharpened fine. Thus far Mr. Wegg had let his dusty friend off lightly, 
having been balked in that amiable design of frequently dining with him by the machinations of the sleepless dustman. He had been constrained to depute Mr. Venus to keep their dusty friend Boffin under inspection, while he himself turned lank and lean at the bower. To Mr. Venus's museum Mr. Wegg repaired, when at length the mounds were down and gone. It being evening, he found that gentleman, as he expected, seated over his fire, but did not find him, as he expected, floating his powerful mind in tea. "'Why, you smell rather comfortable here,' said Wegg, seeming to take it ill, and stopping and sniffing as he entered. "'I am rather comfortable, sir,' said Venus. "'You don't use lemon in your business, do you?' asked Wegg, sniffing again. "'No, Mr. Wegg,' said Venus. "'When I use it at all, I mostly use it in cobbler's punch.' "'Do you call cobbler's punch?' demanded Wegg, in a worse humour than before. "'It's difficult to impart the receipt for it, sir,' returned Venus, "'because, however particular you may be in allotting your materials, so much will still depend upon the individual gifts, and there being a feeling thrown into it. But the groundwork is gin.' "'In a Dutch bottle?' said Wegg gloomily, as he sat himself down. "'Very good, sir, very good,' cried Venus. "'Will you partake, sir?' "'Will I partake?' returned Wegg, very surlily. "'Why, of course I will. Will a man partake, as has been tormented out of his five senses by an everlasting dustman with his head tied up? Will he, too? As if he wouldn't.' "'Don't let it put you out, Mr. Wegg. You don't seem in your usual spirits.' "'If you come to that, you don't seem in your usual spirits,' growled Wegg. You seem to be setting up for lively. This circumstance appeared, in his then state of mind, to give Mr. Wegg uncommon offence. "'And you've been having your hair cut,' said Wegg, missing the usual dusty shock. "'Yes, Mr. Wegg, but don't let that put you out either.' "'And I am blessed if you ain't getting fat,' said Wegg, with culminating discontent. "'What are you going to do next?' "'Well, Mr. Wegg,' said Venus, smiling in a spitely manner. "'I suspect you could hardly guess what I'm going to do next.' "'I don't want to guess,' retorted Wegg. "'All I've got to say is that it's well for you that the division of labour has been what it has been. It's well for you to have had so light a part in this business when mine has been so heavy. You haven't had your rest broke, I'll be bound.' "'Not at all, sir,' said Venus. "'Never rested so well in all my life. I thank you.' <sighs> grumbled Wegg. "'You should have been me. If you had been me, and had been fretted out of your bed, and your sleep, and your meals, and your mind for a stretch of months together, you'd have been out of condition and out of sorts.' "'Certainly. It has trained you down, Mr. Wegg,' said Venus, contemplating his figure with an artist's eye. "'Trained you down very low, it has. So reason and yellow is the carving upon your bones, that one might almost fancy you had come to give a look-in upon the French gentleman in the corner, instead of me." Mr. Wegg, glancing in great dudgeon towards the French gentleman's corner, seemed to notice something new there, which induced him to glance at the opposite corner, and then to put on his glasses and stare at all the nooks and corners of the dim shop in succession. "'Why, you've been having the place cleaned up!' he exclaimed. "'Yes, Mr. Wegg, by the hand of adorable woman.' "'Then, what are you going to do next, I suppose, 
is to get married. That's it, sir. Silas took off his glasses again, finding himself too intensely disgusted by the sprightly appearance of his friend and partner to bear a magnified view of him, and made the inquiry. To the old party. Mr. Wegg, said Venus, with a sudden flush of wrath, the lady in question is not an old party. I meant, exclaimed Wegg testily, to the party as formerly objected. Mr. Wegg, said Venus, in a case of so much delicacy, I must trouble you to say what you mean. There are strings that must not be played upon, no, sir, not sounded, unless in the most respectful and tuneful manner. Of such melodious strings is Miss Pleasant Rider had formed. Then it is the lady, as formerly objected, said Wegg. Sir, returned Venus with dignity, I accept the altered phrase. It is the lady, as formerly objected. When is it to come off? asked Silas. Mr. Wegg, said Venus with another flush, I cannot permit it to be put in the form of a fight. I must temperately but firmly call upon you, sir, to amend that question. When is the lady, Wegg reluctantly demanded, constraining his ill-temper in remembrance of the partnership and its stock-in-trade, are going to give her and where she has already give her art? Sir, returned Venus, I again accept the awkward phrase, and with pleasure. The lady is a-going to give her hand, where she has already given her art, next Monday. Then the lady's objection has been met, said Silas. Mr. Wegg, said Venus, as I did name to you, I think, on a former occasion, if not on former occasions. On former occasions, interrupted Wegg. What? pursued Venus, what the nature of the lady's objection was. I may impart, without violating any of the tender confidences since sprung up between the lady and myself, how it has been met, through the kind interference of two good friends of mine, one previously acquainted with the lady, and one not. The pint was thrown out, sir, by those two friends, when they did me the great service of waiting on the lady to try if a union betwixt the lady and me could not be brought to bear. The pint, I say, was thrown out by them, sir, whether, if, after marriage, I confine myself to the articulation of men, children, and the lower animals. It might not relieve the lady's mind of her feeling respecting being as a lady, regarded in a bony light. It was happy thought, sir, and it took root. It would seem, Mr. Venus, observed Wegg, with a touch of distrust, that you are flash of friends. Pretty well, sir, that gentleman answered in a tone of placid mystery. So, so, sir, pretty well. However, said Wegg, after eyeing him with another touch of distrust, I wish you joy. One man spends his fortune in one way, and another in another. You are going to try matrimony, I mean to try travelling. Indeed, Mr. Wegg. Change of air, sea scenery, and my natural rest, I hope, may bring me round after the persecutions I have undergone from the dustman with his head tied up, which I just now mentioned. The tough job being ended, and the mounds laid low, the hour is come for Boffin to stump up. Would tent tomorrow morning suit you, partner, for finally bringing Boffin's nose to the grindstone? Ten tomorrow morning would quite suit Mr. Venus for that excellent purpose.
"'You have had him well under inspection, I hope,' said Silas. Mr. Venus had had him under inspection pretty well every day. "'Suppose you was just to step round to-night, then, and give him orders from me—I say from me, because he knows I won't be played with—to be ready with his papers, his accounts, and his cash, at that time in the morning,' said Wegg. "'And as a matter of form, which will be agreeable to your own feelings, before we go out, for I'll walk with you part of the way, though my leg gives under me with weariness, is have a look at the stocking-trade.' Mr. Venus produced it, and it was perfectly correct. Mr. Venus undertook to produce it again in the morning, and to keep tryst with Mr. Wegg on Boffin's doorstep as the clock struck ten. At a certain point of the road between Clerkenwell and Boffin's house, Mr. Wegg expressly insisted that there should be no prefix to the golden dustman's name. The partners separated for the night. It was a very bad night, to which succeeded a very bad morning. The streets were so unusually slushy, muddy, and miserable in the morning, that Wegg rode to the scene of action, arguing that a man who was, as it were, going to the bank to draw out a handsome property, could well afford that trifling expense. Venus was punctual, and Wegg undertook to knock at the door and conduct the conference. Door knocked at, door opened. Boffin at home. The servant replied that Mr. Boffin was at home. "'He'll do,' said Wegg, "'though it ain't when I call him.' The servant inquired if they had any appointment. "'Now, I'll tell you what, young fellow,' said Wegg, "'I won't have it. This won't do for me. I don't want menials. I want Boffin.' They were shown into a waiting-room, where the all-powerful Wegg wore his hat and whistled and with his forefinger stirred up a clock that stood upon the chimney-piece, until he made it strike. In a few minutes they were shown upstairs into what used to be Boffin's room, which, besides the door of entrance, had folding-doors in it, to make it one of a suite of rooms when occasion required. Here Boffin was seated at a library table, and here Mr. Wegg, having imperiously motioned the servant to withdraw, drew up a chair, and seated himself, in his hat, close beside him. Here also Mr. Wegg instantly underwent the remarkable experience of having his hat twitched off his head, and thrown out of a window, which was opened and shut for the purpose. "'Be careful what insolent liberties you take in that gentleman's presence,' said the owner of the hand which had done this, "'or I will throw you after it.' Wegg involuntarily clapped his hand to his bare head, and stared at the secretary, for— it was he addressed him with a severe countenance, and who had come in quietly by the folding doors. "'Oh,' said Wegg, as soon as he recovered his suspended power of speech, "'very good. I gave directions for you to be dismissed, and you ain't gone, ain't you? Oh, will you look into this presently? Very good.' "'No, nor I ain't gone,' said another voice. Somebody else had come in quietly by the folding doors. Turning his head, Wegg beheld his persecutor, the ever-wakeful dustman, accoutred with fantail hat and velveteen smalls complete, who, untying his tied-up broken head, revealed a head that was whole, and a face that was sloppies. "'Ha, ha, ha, gentlemen!' 
roared Sloppy in a peal of laughter, and with a measurable relish. "'He never thought as I could sleep standing, and often done it when I turned for Mrs. Higdon. He never thought as I used to give Mrs. Higdon the police news in different voices. But I did lead him a laugh or through it, gentlemen. I hope I really and truly did.' Here Mr. Sloppy, opening his mouth to a quite alarming extent, and throwing back his head to peel again, revealed incalculable buttons. "'Oh!' said Wegg, slightly discomfited, but not much as yet. "'One and one is two, not dismissed, is it? Boffin! Just let me ask a question. Who set this chap on, in this dress, when the carting began?' "'Who employed this fellow?' "'I say,' remonstrated Sloppy, jerking his head forward, "'no fellows, or I'll throw you out of window.' Mr. Boffin appeased him with a wave of his hand, and said, "'I employed him, Wegg.' "'Oh, you employed him, Boffin? Very good. Mr. Venus, we raise our terms, and we can't do better than proceed to business.' Boffin! I want the room cleared of these two scum.' "'That's not going to be done, Wegg,' replied Mr. Boffin, sitting composedly on the library table at one end, while the secretary sat composedly on it at the other. "'Boffin! Not going to be done?' repeated Wegg. "'Not at your peril?' "'No, Wegg,' said Mr. Boffin, shaking his head good-humouredly. "'Not at my peril, and not on any other terms.' Wegg reflected a moment, and then said, "'Mr. Venus, will you be so good as hand me over that same document?' "'Certainly, sir,' replied Venus, handing it to him with much politeness. "'There it is. Having now, sir, parted with it, I wish to make a small observation, not so much because it is any ways necessary, or expresses any new doctrine or discovery, as because it is a comfort to my mind. Silas Wegg, you're a precious old rascal.' Mr. Wegg, who, as if anticipating a compliment, had been beating time with the paper to the other's politeness, until this unexpected conclusion came upon him, stopped rather abruptly. "'Silas Wegg,' said Venus, "'know that I took the liberty of taking Mr. Boffin into our concern as a sleeping partner at a very early period of our firm's existence.' "'Quite true,' added Mr. Boffin, "'and I tested Venus by making him a pretended proposal or two. I found him on the whole a very honest man, Wegg. "'So, Mr. Boffin, in his indulgence, is pleased to say,' Venus remarked, "'though, in the beginning of this dirt, my hands were not, for a few hours, quite as clean as I could wish, but I hope I made early and full amends.' "'Venus, you did,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Certainly, certainly, certainly.' Venus inclined his head, with respect and gratitude. "'Thank you, sir. I am much obliged to you, sir, for all. For your good opinion, now.' for your way of receiving and encouraging me, when I first put myself in a communication with you, and for the influence since so kindly brought to bear upon a certain lady, both by yourself and by Mr. John Harmon, to whom, when thus making mention of him, he also bowed. Wegg followed the name with sharp ears, and the action with sharp eyes, and a certain cringing air was infusing itself into his bullying air, when his attention was reclaimed by Venus. "'Everything else 
between you and me, Mr. Wegg,' said Venus, "'now explains itself, and you can now make out, sir, without further words from me, but totally to prevent any unpleasantness or mistake that might arise on what I consider an important point to be made quite clear at the close of our acquaintance, I beg the leave of Mr. Boffin and Mr. John Harmon to repeat an observation which I have already had the pleasure of bringing under your notice. You are a precious old rascal.' "'You're a fool,' said Wegg, with a snap of his fingers, "'and I'd have got rid of you before now, if I could have struck out any way of doing it. I've thought it over, I can tell you. You may go, and welcome. You leave the more for me, because you know,' said Wegg, dividing his next observation between Mr. Boffin and Mr. Harmon, "'I'm worth my price, and I mean to have it.' This getting off is all very well in its way, and it tells with such an anatomical pump as this one, pointing out Mr. Venus, but it won't do with a man. I am here to be bought off, and I have named my figure. Now, buy me, or leave me. I'll leave you, Wegg, said Mr. Boffin, laughing, as far as I'm concerned. Boffin, replied Wegg, turning upon him with a severe air. I understand your new-born boldness. I see the brass underneath your silver plating. You have got your nose out of joint. Knowing that you've nothing at stake, you can afford to come the independent game. Why, you're just so much smeary glass to see through, you know. But Mr. Harmon is in another situation. What Mr. Harmon risks is quite another pair of shoes. Now, I've heard something lately about this being Mr. Harmon. I make out now some hints that I've met on that subject in the newspaper, and I drop you boffin as beneath my notice. I ask Mr. Harmon whether he has any idea of the contents of this present paper. It is a will of my late father's, of more recent date than the will proved by Mr. Boffin. Address whom again, as you have addressed him already, and I'll knock you down. Leaving the whole of his property to the Crown, said John Harmon, with as much indifference as was compatible with extreme sternness. "'Bite you are!' cried Wegg. "'Then,' screwing the weight of his body upon his wooden leg, and screwing his wooden head very much on one side, and screwing up one eye, "'then I put the question to you.' "'What's this paper worth?' "'Nothing,' said John Harmon. Wegg had repeated the word with a sneer, and was entering on some sarcastic retort, when, to his boundless amazement, he found himself gripped by the cravat, shaken until his teeth chattered, shoved back, staggering, into a corner of the room, and pinned there. "'You scoundrel!' said John Harmon, whose seafaring hold was like that of a vice. "'You're knocking my head against the wall,' urged Silas faintly. "'I mean to knock your head against the wall,' returned John Harmon, suiting his action to his words with the heartiest good will. "'And I give a thousand pounds for leave to knock your brains out. Listen, you scoundrel, and look at that Dutch bottle.' Sloppy held it up for his edification. "'That Dutch bottle, scoundrel,' contained the latest will of the many wills made by my unhappy self-tormenting father. 
That will gives everything absolutely to my noble benefactor and yours, Mr. Boffin. Excluding and reviling me and my sister, then already dead of a broken heart, by name. That Dutch bottle was found by my noble benefactor and yours, after he entered on possession of the estate. That Dutch bottle distressed him beyond measure, because though I and my sister were both no more, it cast a slur upon our memory, which he knew we had done nothing in our miserable youth to deserve. That Dutch bottle, therefore, he buried in the mound belonging to him, and there it lay while you, you thankless wretch, were prodding and poking, often very near it, I dare say. His intention was that it should never see the light, but he was afraid to destroy it, lest to destroy such a document, even with his great generous motive, might be an offence at law. After the discovery was made here who I was, Mr. Boffin, still restless on the subject, told me upon certain conditions impossible for such a hound as you to appreciate, the secret of that Dutch bottle. I urged upon him the necessity of its being dug up, and the paper being legally produced and established. The first thing you saw him do, and the second thing has been done without your knowledge. Consequently, the paper now rattling in your hand as I shake you, and I should like to shake the life out of you, is worth less than the rotten cork of the Dutch bottle. Do you understand? Judging from the fallen countenance of Silas, as his head wagged backwards and forwards in a most uncomfortable manner, he did understand. Now, scoundrel, said John Harmon, taking another sailor-like turn on his cravat, and holding him in his corner at arm's length, I shall make two more short speeches to you because I hope they will torment you. Your discovery was a genuine discovery, such as it was, for nobody had thought of looking into that place. Neither did we know you had made it, until Venus spoke to Mr. Boffin, though I kept you under good observation from my first appearance here, and though Sloppy has long made it the chief occupation and delight of his life to attend you like your shadow. I tell you this— that you may know we knew enough of you to persuade Mr. Boffin to let us lead you on, deluded to the last possible moment, in order that your disappointment might be the heaviest possible disappointment. That's the first short speech. Do you understand? Here John Harmon assisted his comprehension with another shake. Now, scoundrel, he pursued, I am going to finish. You supposed me just now to be the possessor of my father's property. So I am. But through any act of my father's, or by any right I have? No. Through the munificence of Mr. Boffin. The conditions that he made with me before parting with the secret of the Dutch bottle were that I should take the fortune, and that he should take his mound, and no more. I owe everything I possess, solely to the disinterestedness, uprightness, tenderness, goodness, there are no words to satisfy me, of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin. And when, knowing what I knew, I saw such a mudworm as you presume to rise in this house against this noble soul, the wonder is, added John Harmon through his clenched teeth, and with a very ugly turn indeed on Wegg's cravat, 
that I didn't try to twist your head off and fling that out of the window. So, that's the last short speech. Do you understand? Silas released, put his hand to his throat, cleared it, and looked as if he had a rather large fishbone in that region. Simultaneously with this action on his part in his corner, a singular, and on the surface an incomprehensible, movement was made by Mr. Sloppy, who began backing towards Mr. Wegg along the wall, in the manner of a porter or heaver who is about to lift a sack of flour or coals. "'I'm sorry, Wegg,' said Mr. Boffin, in his clemency, "'that my old lady and I can't have a better opinion of you than the bad one we are forced to entertain. But I shouldn't like to leave you, after all said and done, worse off in life than I found you. Therefore, say in a word, before we part, what it'll cost to set you up in another stall.' "'And in another place,' John Harmon struck in, "'you don't come outside these windows.' "'Mr. Boffin,' returned Wegg, in avaricious humiliation, "'when I first had the honour of making your acquaintance, I got together a collection of ballads, which was, I may say, above price. Then they can't be paid for,' said John Harmon, "'and you had better not try, my dear sir.' "'Pardon me, Mr. Boffin,' resumed Wegg, with a malignant glance in the last speaker's direction, "'I was putting the case to you, who, if my senses did not deceive me, put the case to me. I had a very choice collection of ballads, and there was a new stock of gingerbread in the tin box. I say no more, but would rather leave it to you. But it's difficult to name what's right, said Mr. Boffin uneasily, with his hand in his pocket, and I don't want to go beyond what's right, because you really have turned out such a very bad fellow. So artful, and so ungrateful you have been, Wegg, for when did I ever injure you? There was also, Mr. Wegg went on, in a meditative manner, a uh, errand connection in which I was much respected, but I would not wish to be deemed covetous, and I would rather leave it to you, Mr. Boffin. Upon my word, I don't know what to put it at, the golden dustman muttered. There was, likewise, resumed Wegg, a pair of trestles, for which alone an Irish person who was deemed a judge of trestles offered five and six, a sum I would not hear of, or I should have lost by it. And there was a stool, an umbrella, clothes horse, and a tray. But I leave it to you, Mr. Boffin." The golden dustman seeming to be engaged in some abstruse calculation, Mr. Wegg assisted him with the following additional items. There was further Miss Elizabeth, Master George, Aunt Jane, and Uncle Parker. Ah! when a man thinks of the loss of such patronage as that, when a man finds so fair a garden rooted up by pigs, he finds it hard indeed, without going high, to work it into money. But I'll leave it wholly to you, sir." Mr. Sloppy still continued his singular and on the surface his incomprehensible movement. "'Leading on has been mentioned,' said Wegg, with a melancholy air and it's not easy to say how far the tone of my mind may have been lowered by unwholesome reading on the subject of misers when you was leading me and others on to think you was one yourself all i can say is 
that I felt my tone of mind a-lowering at the time, and how can a man put a price upon his mind? There was likewise a hat, just now, but I leave the whole to you, Mr. Boffin. Come, said Mr. Boffin, here's a couple of pound. In justice to myself, I couldn't take it, sir. The words were but out of his mouth when John Harmon lifted his finger, and Sloppy, who was now close to Wegg, backed to Wegg's back, stooped, grasped his coat-collar behind with both hands, and deftly swung him up like the sack of flour or coals before mentioned. A countenance of special discontent and amazement Mr. Wegg exhibited in this position, with his buttons almost as prominently on view as Sloppy's own, and with his wooden leg in a highly unaccommodating state. But not for many seconds was his countenance visible in the room, for Sloppy lightly trotted out with him, and trotted down the staircase. Mr. Venus attending to open the street door, Mr. Sloppy's instructions had been to deposit his burden in the road. But a scavenger's cart happening to stand unattended at the corner, with this little ladder planted against the wheel, Mr. S. found it impossible to resist the temptation of shooting Mr. Silas Wegg into the cart's contents. A somewhat difficult feat, achieved with great dexterity, and with a prodigious splash. End of Book Four Chapter Fourteen Book Four Chapter Fifteen of Our Mutual Friend This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens Book Four A Turning Chapter Fifteen What Was Caught in the Traps That Were Set How Bradley Headstone had been racked and riven in his mind since the quiet evening when by the riverside he had risen, as it were, out of the ashes of the bargeman, none but he could have told. Not even he could have told for such misery can only be felt. First he had to bear the combined weight of the knowledge of what he had done, of that haunting reproach that he might have done it so much better, and of the dread of discovery. This was load enough to crush him, and he laboured under it day and night. It was as heavy on him in his scanty sleep as in his red-eyed waking hours. It bore him down with a dread unchanging monotony, in which there was not a moment's variety. The overweighted beast of burden, or the overweighted slave, can for certain instants shift the physical load, and find some slight respite, even in enforcing additional pain upon such a set of muscles or such a limb. Not even that poor mockery of relief could the wretched man obtain, under the steady pressure of the infernal atmosphere into which he had entered. Time went by, and no visible suspicion dogged him. Time went by and in such public accounts of the attack, as were renewed at intervals, he began to see Mr. Lightwood, who acted as lawyer for the injured man, straying further from the fact, going wider of the issue, and evidently slackening in his zeal. By degrees a glimmering of the cause of this began to break on Bradley's sight. Then came the chance meeting with Mr. Milvey at the railway station where he often lingered in his leisure hours, as a place where any fresh news of his deed would be circulated, or any placard referring to it would be posted, 
and then he saw in the light what he had brought about. For then he saw that through his desperate attempt to separate those two for ever, he had been made the means of uniting them, that he had dipped his hands in blood to mark himself a miserable fool and tool, yet Eugene Rayburn, for his wife's sake, set him aside and left him to crawl along his blasted course. He thought of fate, or providence, or be the directing power what it might, as having put a fraud upon him, overreached him, and in his impotent mad rage bit and tore and had his fit. New assurance of the truth came upon him in the next few following days, when it was put forth how the wounded man had been married on his bed, and to whom, and how, though always in a dangerous condition, he was a shade better. Bradley would far rather have been seized for his murder than he would have read that passage, knowing himself spared, and knowing why. But, not to be still further defrauded and overreached, which he would be, if implicated by riderhood, and punished by the law for his abject failure as though it had been a success, he kept close in his school during the day, ventured out warily at night, and went no more to the railway station. He examined the advertisements in the newspapers for any sign that Riderhood acted on his hinted threat of so summoning him to renew their acquaintance, but found none. Having paid him handsomely for the support and accommodation he had had at the lock-house, and knowing him to be a very ignorant man who could not write, he began to doubt whether he was to be feared at all, or whether they need ever meet again. All this time his mind was never off the rack, and his raging sense of having been made to fling himself across the chasm which divided those two, and bridge it over for their coming together, never cooled down. This horrible condition brought on other fits. He could not have said how many, or when, but he saw in the faces of his pupils that they had seen him in that state, and that they were possessed by a dread of his relapsing. One winter day, when a slight fall of snow was feathering the sills and frames of the schoolroom windows, he stood at his blackboard, crayon in hand, about to commence with a class, when, reading in the countenances of those boys that there was something wrong, and that they seemed in alarm for him, he turned his eyes to the door towards which they faced. He then saw a slouching man of forbidding appearance standing in the midst of the school with a bundle under his arm and saw that it was Riderhood. He sat down on a stool which one of his boys put for him, and he had a passing knowledge that he was in danger of falling, and that his face was becoming distorted, but the fit went off for that time, and he wiped his mouth, and stood up again. "'Beg your pardon, Governor, by your leave,' said Riderhood, knuckling his forehead with a chuckle and a leer. "'What place may this be?' "'This is a school.' "'Where your young folks learns what's right,' said Riderhood, gravely nodding. "'Beg your pardon, Governor, by your leave. "'But who teaches this school?' "'I do.' "'You're the master, are you, learned Governor?' "'Yes, I am the master.' "'And a lovely thing it must be,' said Riderhood. "'for to learn young folks what's right, "'and for to know what they know what you do it. "'Beg your pardon, learned governor, by your leave, "'that there blackboard, what's it for?' "'It is for drawing on, or writing on.' 
"'Is it, though?' said Riderhood. "'Who'd have thought it, from the looks on it? "'Would you be so kind as write your name upon it, learned governor?' "'In a wheedling tone.' Bradley hesitated for a moment, but placed his usual signature enlarged upon the board. "'I ain't a learnt character myself.' said Riderhood, surveying the class, but I do admire learning in others. I should dearly like to hear these here young folks read that their name off from their writing. The arms of the class went up. At the miserable master's nod, the shrill chorus arose. Bradley Headstone. No! cried Riderhood. You don't mean it. Headstone, why, that's in a churchyard. Hurrah <laughs> for another turn. Another tossing of arms, another nod, and another shrill chorus. Bradley Headstone. Oh, I've got it now, said Riderhood, after tentatively listening and internally repeating. Bradley, I see, christened name. Bradley, similar to Roger, which is my own. Eh? Family name, Edstone, similar to Riderhood, which is my own. Eh? Shrill chorus, yes. Might you be acquainted, learned governor, said Riderhood, with a person of about your own height and breadth, and what would pull down in the scale about your own weight? Answering to a name sounding somewhat like Tatherest. With a desperation in him had made him perfectly quiet, though his jaw was heavily squared, with his eyes upon Riderhood, and with traces of quickened breathing in his nostrils, the schoolmaster replied, in a suppressed voice, after a pause, I think I know the man you mean. I thought you knowed the man I mean, learned governor. I want the man. With a half-glance around him at his pupils, Bradley returned, Do you suppose he is here? Begging your pardon, learned governor, and by your leave, said Riderhood with a laugh, how could I suppose he's here, when there's nobody here but you and me, and these young lambs what you're a-learning on? But he is most excellent company, that man, and I want him to come and see me at my lock up the river. I'll tell him so. Do you think he'll come? asked Riderhood. I'm sure he will. Having got your word for him, said Riderhood, I shall count upon him. Perhaps you'd so fur oblige me, learned governor as tell him that if he don't come precious soon, I'll look him up. He shall know it. Thank ye. As I says a while ago, pursued Riderhood, changing his hoarse tone and leering round upon the class again, Oh, not a learned character in me own self, I do admire learning in others, to be sure. Being here, and having met with your kind attention, master, might I, afore I go, ask a question of these here young lambs of yourn? If it is in the way of school, said Bradley, always sustaining his dark look at the other, and speaking in his suppressed voice, 
You may. Oh, it's in the way of school, cried Riderhood. I'll pound it, master, to be in the way of school. What's the divisions of water, my lambs? What sorts of water is there on the land? Shrill chorus. Seas, rivers, lakes, and ponds. Seas, rivers, lakes, and ponds, said Riderhood. They've got all a lot, master. Blowed if I shouldn't have left out lakes, never having clapped eyes upon one, to my knowledge. Seas, rivers, lakes, and ponds. What is it, lambs, as they catches in seas, rivers, lakes, and ponds? Shrill chorus, with some contempt for the ease of the question. Fish. Good again, said Riderhood. But what else is it, my lambs, as they sometimes catches in rivers? Chorus at a loss. One shrill voice. Weed. Good again, cried Riderhood. But it ain't weed neither. You'll never guess, my dears. What is it besides fish, as they sometimes catches in rivers? Well, I'll tell you. It's suits of clothes. Bradley's face changed. Leastways, lambs, said Riderhood, observing him out of the corners of his eyes. That's what I, my own self, sometimes catches in rivers, for strike me blind, my lambs, if I didn't catch in a river the wherry bundle under my arm. The class looked at the master, as if appealing from the irregular entrapment of this mode of examination. The master looked at the examiner, as if he would have torn him to pieces. "'I ask your pardon, learned governor,' said Riderhood, smearing his sleeve across his mouth, as he laughed with a relish. "'Chain fair to the lambs, I know. It was a bit of fun of mine. But upon my soul I drawed this here bundle out of a river. It's a bargeman suit of clothes. You see, it had been sunk there.' by the man as wore it, and I got it up. "'How do you know it was sunk by the man who wore it?' asked Bradley. "'Cause I see him do it,' said Riderhood. They looked at each other. Bradley, slowly withdrawing his eyes, turned his face to the blackboard, and slowly wiped his name out. "'A heap of thanks, master!' said Riderhood, for bestowing so much of your time, and of the lambs's time, upon a man that hasn't got no other recommendation to you than being an honest man, wishing to see at my lock up the river the person as we've spoke of, and as you've answered for, I takes me leave of the lambs, and of their learned governor both. With those words he slouched out of the school leaving the master to get through his weary work as he might, and leaving the whispering pupils to observe the master's face until he fell into the fit which had been long impending. The next day but one was Saturday and a holiday. Bradley rose early, and sat out on foot for Plashwater Weir Mill Lock. He rose so early that it was not yet light when he began his journey. Before extinguishing the candle by which he had dressed himself, he made a little parcel of his decent silver watch and its decent guard, 
and wrote inside the paper, "'Kindly take care of these for me.' He then addressed the parcel to Miss Peacher, and left it on the most protected corner of the little seat in her little porch. It was a cold, hard, easterly morning when he latched the garden gate and turned away. The light snowfall which had feathered his schoolroom windows on the Thursday still lingered in the air, and was falling white while the wind blew black. The tardy day did not appear until he had been on foot two hours, and had traversed a greater part of London from east to west. Such breakfast as he had, he took at the comfortless public-house, where he had parted from Riderhood on the occasion of their night walk. He took it, standing at the littered bar, and looked loweringly at a man who stood where Riderhood had stood that early morning. He outwalked the short day, and was on the towing-path by the river, somewhat footsore, when the night closed in. Still two or three miles short of the lock, he slackened his pace then, but went steadily on. The ground was now covered with snow, though thinly, and there were floating lumps of ice in the more exposed parts of the river, and broken sheets of ice under the shelter of the banks. He took heed of nothing but the ice, the snow, and the distance, until he saw a light ahead, which he knew gleamed from the lock-house window. It arrested his steps, and he looked all round. The ice, and the snow, and he, and the one light, had absolute possession of the dreary scene. In the distance before him lay the place where he had struck the worse than useless blows that mocked him with Lizzie's presence there as Eugene's wife. In the distance behind him lay the place where the children with pointing arms had seemed to devote him to the demons in crying out his name. Within there, where the light was, was the man who as to both distances could give him up to ruin. To these limits had his world shrunk. He mended his pace, keeping his eyes upon the light with a strange intensity, as if he were taking aim at it. When he approached it so nearly as that it parted into rays, they seemed to fasten themselves to him, and draw him on. When he struck the door with his hand, his foot followed so quickly on his hand, that he was in the room before he was bidden to enter. The light was the joint product of a fire and a candle. Between the two, with his feet on the iron fender, sat Riderhood, pipe in mouth. He looked up with a surly nod when his visitor came in. His visitor looked down with a surly nod. His outer clothing removed, the visitor then took a seat on the opposite side of the fire. "'Not a smoker, I think,' said Riderhood, pushing a bottle to him across the table. "'No.' They both lapsed into silence, with their eyes upon the fire. "'You don't need to be told I am here,' said Bradley at length. "'Who is to begin?' "'I'll begin,' said Riderhood, "'when I've smoked this here pipe out.' He finished it with great deliberation, knocked out the ashes on the hob, and put it by. "'I'll begin,' he then repeated. "'Bradley Headstone, master, if you wish it.' "'Wish it? I wish to know what you want with me.' "'And so you shall. Riderhood had looked hard at his hands and his pockets, apparently as a precautionary measure, lest he should have any weapon about him. But he now leaned forward, turning the collar of his waistcoat with an inquisitive finger, and asked, "'Why, where's your watch?' "'I have left it behind.' "'I want it, but it can be fetched. I've took a fancy to it.' Bradley answered with a contemptuous laugh, 
"'I want it,' repeated Riderhood, in a louder voice, "'and I mean to have it.' "'That is what you want of me, is it?' "'No,' said Riderhood, still louder. "'It's only part of what I want of you. I want money of you.' "'Anything else?' "'Everything else.' roared Riderhood, in a very loud and furious way. "'Answer me like that, and I won't talk to you at all.' Bradley looked at him. "'Don't so much as look at me like that, or I won't talk to you at all,' vociferated Riderhood. "'But instead of talking, I'll bring my hand down upon you with all its weight,' heavily smiting the table with great force, "'and smash you.' "'Go on.' said Bradley, after moistening his lips. "'Oh, I'm a-going on. Don't you fear, but I'll go on full fast enough for you, and fur enough for you, without your telling. Look here, Bradley Edstone, master. You might have split the t'other governor to chips and wedges, without my caring, except that I might have come upon you for a glass or so now and then.' else why have to do with you at all but when you copied my clothes and when you copied my neck handkercher and when you shook blood upon me after you had done the trick you did what i'll be paid for and paid heavy for if it come to be throwed upon you you was to be ready to throw it upon me was you where else but in plashwater weir mill lock was there a man dressed according as described? Where else but in Plashwater Weir Mill Lock was there a man as had words with him coming through in his boat? Look at the lock-keeper in Plashwater Weir Mill Lock, in them same answering clothes and with that same answering redneck handkercher, and see whether his clothes happens to be bloody or not. Yes, they do happen to be bloody. Ha <laughs> you sly devil! Bradley, very white, sat looking at him in silence. But who can play at your game? said Riderhood, snapping his fingers at him half a dozen times. And I played it long ago, long afore you tried your clumsy hand at it, in days when you hadn't begun croaking your lectures or what not in your school. I know to a figure how you'd done it. Where you stole away, I could steal away arter you, and do it knowinger than you. I know how you come away from London in your own clothes, and where you changed your clothes and hid your clothes, I see you with my own eyes take your own clothes from their hiding-place among them felled trees, and take a dip in the river to account for your dressing yourself to any one as might come by. I see you rise up, Bradley Edstone, master, where you sat down, bargeman. I see you pitch your bargeman's bundle into the river. I hooked your bargeman's bundle out of the river. I've got your bargeman's clothes, tore this way and that, with a scuffle, stained green with the grass, and spattered all over with what bust from the blows. I've got them and I've got you. I don't care a curse for the t'other governor, alive or dead, but I care a many curses for my own self. And as you laid your plots agin me, and was a sly devil agin me, 
I'll be paid for it, I'll be paid for it, I'll be paid for it, till I've drained you dry. Bradley looked at the fire with a working face, and was silent for a while. At last he said, with what seemed an inconsistent composure of voice and feature, "'You can't get blood out of a stone, Riderhood.' "'I can get money out of a schoolmaster, though.' "'You can't get out of me what is not in me. "'You can't wrest from me what I have not got. "'Mine is but a poor calling. "'You have had more than two guineas from me already. "'Do you know how long it has taken me, "'allowing for a long and arduous training, "'to earn such a sum?' "'I don't know. "'Nor I don't care. "'Yours is a spectable calling. "'To save your spectability, it's worth your while to pawn every article of clothes you've got, sell every stick in your house, and beg and borrow every penny you can get trusted with. When you've done that, and handed over, I'll leave you, not a four. How do you mean, you'll leave me? I mean, as I'll keep you company, wherever you go, when you go away from here, let the lock take care of itself. I'll take care of you, once I've got you." Bradley again looked at the fire. Eyeing him aside, Riderhood took up his pipe, refilled it, lighted it, and sat smoking. Bradley leaned his elbows on his knees, and his head upon his hands, and looked at the fire with a most intent abstraction. "'Riderhood,' he said, raising himself in his chair after a long silence, and drawing out his purse and putting it on the table. Say I part with this, which is all the money I have. Say I let you have my watch. Say that every quarter, when I draw my salary, I pay you a certain portion of it. Say nothing of the sort, retorted Riderhood, shaking his head as he smoked. You've got away once, and I won't run the chance again. I've had trouble enough to find you and shouldn't have found you if I hadn't seen you slipping along the street overnight, and watched you till you was safe housed. I'll have one settlement with you, for good and all. Riderhood, I am a man who has lived a retired life. I have no resources beyond myself. I have absolutely no friends. That's a lie, said Riderhood. You've got one friend, as I knows of. One as is good for a savings-bank book, or I'm a blue monkey." Bradley's face darkened, and his hand slowly closed on the purse and drew it back, as he sat listening for what the other should go on to say. "'I went into the wrong shop first, last Thursday,' said Riderhood. "'Found myself among the young ladies, by George. Over the young ladies I see a missus. That missus is sweet enough upon you, master, to sell herself up, slap, to get you out of trouble. Make her do it, then." Bradley stared at him so very suddenly, that Riderhood, not quite knowing how to take it, affected to be occupied with the encircling smoke from his pipe, fanning it away with his hand, and blowing it off. "'You spoke to the mistress, did you?' inquired Bradley, with that former composure of voice and feature that seemed inconsistent and with averted eyes. "'Poof! Yes!' said Riderhood, withdrawing his attention from the smoke. 
I spoke to her. I didn't say much to her. She was put in a fluster by my dropping in among the young ladies. I never did sit up for a lady's man. And she took me into her parlour to hope as there was nothing wrong. I tells her, oh, no, nothing wrong. The master's my very good friend. But I see how the land laid, and that she was comfortable off. Bradley put the purse in his pocket, grasped his left wrist with his right hand, and sat rigidly contemplating the fire. "'She couldn't live more handy to you than she does,' said Riderhood. "'And when I goes home with you, as of course I am a-going, I recommend you to clean her out without loss of time. You can marry her arter you and me have come to a settlement. She's nice-looking, and I know you can't be keeping company with no one else, having been so lately disappointed in another quarter.' Not one other word did Bradley utter all that night. Not once did he change his attitude, or loosen his hold upon his wrist. Rigid before the fire, as if it were a charmed flame that was turning him old, he sat, with the dark lines deepening in his face, its stare becoming more and more haggard, its surface turning whiter and whiter, as if it were being overspread with ashes, and the very texture and colour of his hair degenerating. Not until the late daylight made the window transparent did this decaying statue move. Then it slowly arose, and sat in the window, looking out. Riderhood had kept his chair all night. In the earlier part of the night he had muttered twice or thrice that it was bitter cold, or that the fire burnt fast when he got up to mend it. But as he could elicit from his companion neither sound nor movement, he had afterwards held his peace. He was making some disorderly preparations for coffee, when Bradley came from the window, and put on his outer coat and hat. "'And us better have a bit of breakfast afore we start,' said Riderhood. "'It ain't good to freeze a empty stomach, master.' Without a sign to show that he heard, Bradley walked out of the lock-house. Catching up from the table a piece of bread, and taking his bargeman's bundle under his arm, Riderhood immediately followed him. Bradley turned towards London. Riderhood caught him up, and walked at his side. The two men trudged on, side by side, in silence, full three miles. Suddenly, Bradley turned to retrace his course. Instantly, Riderhood turned likewise, and they went back, side by side. Bradley re-entered the lock-house. So did Riderhood. Bradley sat down in the window. Riderhood warmed himself at the fire. After an hour or more, Bradley abruptly got up again, and again went out, but this time turned the other way. Riderhood was close after him, caught him up in a few paces, and walked at his side. This time, as before, when he found his attendant not to be shaken off, Bradley suddenly turned back. This time, as before, Riderhood turned back along with him. But not this time, as before, did they go into the lock-house for Bradley came to a stand on the snow-covered turf by the lock, looking up the river and down the river. Navigation was impeded by the frost, and the scene was a mere white and yellow desert. "'Come, come, master,' urged Riderhood at his side. "'This is a dry game, and where's the good of it? You can't get rid of me, except by coming to a settlement. I'm a-going along with you, wherever you go.' Without a word of reply, Bradley passed quickly from him over the wooden bridge on the lock-gates. 
"'Why, there's even less sense in this move than t'other,' said Riderhood, following. "'The weir's there, and you'll have to come back, you know.' Without taking the least notice, Bradley leaned his body against a post, in a resting attitude, and there rested with his eyes cast down. "'Being broad here,' said Riderhood gruffly, "'I'll turn it to some use, by changing me gates.' With a rattle and a rush of water, he then swung to the lock gates that were standing open, before opening the others. So both sets of gates were, for the moment, closed. "'You better by far be reasonable, Bradley Headstone, master,' said Riderhood, passing him, "'or I'll drain you all the drier for it when we do settle. Ah, would you?' Bradley had caught him round the body. He seemed to be girdled with an iron ring. They were on the brink of the lock about midway between the two sets of gates. "'Let go,' said Riderhood, "'or I'll get me knife out and slash you wherever I can cut you. Let go!' Bradley was drawing to the lock edge. Riderhood was drawing away from it. It was a strong grapple, and a fierce struggle, arm and leg. Bradley got him round with his back to the lock, and still worked him backward. "'Let go!' said Riderhood. "'Stop! What are you trying at?' "'You can't drown me. Ain't I told you that the man as has come through drowning can never be drowned? I can't be drowned.' "'I can be,' returned Bradley, in a desperate, clenched voice. "'I am resolved to be. I'll hold you living, and I'll hold you dead. Come down.' Riderhood went over into the smooth pit, backward, and Bradley Headstone upon him. When the two were found— lying under the ooze and scum behind one of the rotting gates. Riderhood's hold had relaxed, probably in falling, and his eyes were staring upwards. But he was girdled still with Bradley's iron ring, and the rivets of the iron ring held tight. End of Book Four Chapter Fifteen Book Four, Chapter Sixteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning. Chapter Sixteen, Persons and Things in General. Mr. and Mrs. John Harmon's first delightful occupation was to set all matters right that had strayed in any way wrong or that might, could, would, or should, have strayed in any way wrong, while their name was in abeyance. In tracing out affairs for which John's fictitious death was to be considered in any way responsible, they used a very broad and free construction, regarding, for instance, the doll's dressmaker as having a claim on their protection, because of her association with Mrs. Eugene Rayburn, and because of Mrs. Eugene's old association, in her turn, with the dark side of the story. It followed that the old man, Ryer, as a good and serviceable friend to both, was not to be disclaimed, nor even Mr. Inspector, as having been trepanned into an industrious hunt on a false scent. It may be remarked, in connection with that worthy officer, that a rumour shortly afterwards pervaded the force, to the effect that he had confided to Miss Abby Potterson, over a jug of mellow flip, in the bar of the six jolly fellowship porters, that he didn't stand to lose a farthing through Mr. Harmon's coming to life, 
but was quite as well satisfied as if that gentleman had been barbarously murdered, and he, Mr. Inspector, had pocketed the government reward. In all their arrangements of such nature, Mr. and Mrs. John Harmon derived much assistance from their eminent solicitor, Mr. Mortimer Lightwood, who laid about him professionally with such unwonted dispatch and intention, that a piece of work was vigorously pursued as soon as it cut out whereby young Blight was acted on as by that transatlantic dram which is poetically named an eye-opener, and found himself staring at real clients instead of out of window. The accessibility of Raya proving very useful as to a few hints towards the disentanglement of Eugene's affairs, Lightwood applied himself with infinite zest to attacking and harassing Mr. Fledgeby who, discovering himself in danger of being blown into the air by certain explosive transactions in which he had been engaged, and having been sufficiently flayed under his beating, came to a parley and asked for quarter. The harmless Twemlow profited by the conditions entered into, though he little thought it. Mr. Ryer unaccountably melted, waited in person on him over the stable-yard in Duke Street St. James's, no longer ravening but mild, to inform him that payment of interest as heretofore, but henceforth at Mr. Lightwood's offices, would appease his Jewish rancour, and departed with the secret that Mr. John Harmon had advanced the money and become the creditor. Thus was the sublime Snigsworth's wrath averted, and thus did he snort no larger amount of moral grandeur at the Corinthian column in the print over the fireplace than was normally in his, and the British, constitution. Mrs. Wolfer's first visit to the mendicant's bride, the new abode of mendicancy, was a grand event. Pa had been sent for into the city on the very day of taking possession, and had been stunned with astonishment, and brought to, and led about the house by one ear, to behold its various treasures, and had been enraptured and enchanted. Pa had also been appointed secretary, and had been enjoined to give instant notice of resignation to Chicksey, Veneering, and Stobbles, for ever and ever. But Ma came later, and came, as was her due, in state. The carriage was sent for Ma, who entered it with a bearing worthy of the occasion, accompanied rather than supported by Miss Lavinia, who altogether declined to recognise the maternal majesty. Mr. George Sampson meekly followed. He was received in the vehicle by Mrs. Wilfer, as if admitted to the honour of assisting at a funeral in the family, and she then issued the order, "'Onward!' to the mendicant's menial. "'I wish to goodness, Ma,' said Lavvy, throwing herself back among the cushions with her arms crossed, "'that you'd loll a little.' "'How?' repeated Mrs. Wilfer. "'Loll?' "'Yes, Ma.' "'I hope,' said the impressive lady, "'I am incapable of it.' "'I am sure you look so, Ma. But why one should go out to dine with one's own daughter or sister, as if one's under-petticoat was a blackboard, I do not understand.' "'Neither do I understand,' retorted Mrs. Wolfer, with deep scorn, "'how a young lady can mention the garment in the name of which you have indulged, I blush for you.' "'Thank you, Ma,' said Lavvy, yawning, "'but I can do it for myself. I'm obliged to you when there's any occasion.' Here Mr. Sampson, with the view of establishing harmony, which he never under any circumstances succeeded in doing, said with an agreeable smile, "'After all, you know, ma'am, we know it's there,' and immediately felt that he had committed himself. "'We know it's there,' said Mrs. Wilfer, glaring. "'Really, George,' 
remonstrated Miss Lavinia. "'I must say that I don't understand your allusions, and I think you might be more delicate and less personal.' "'Go it,' cried Mr. Sampson, becoming on the shortest notice a prey to despair. "'Oh, yes, go it, Miss Lavinia Wilfer.' Uh, "'What you may mean, George Sampson, by your omnibus-driving expressions, I cannot pretend to imagine. Neither,' said Miss Lavinia. "'Mr. George Sampson, do I wish to imagine. It is enough for me to know, in my own heart, that I am not going to—' Having imprudently got into a sentence without providing a way out of it, Miss Lavinia was constrained to close with, "'Going to it!' A weak conclusion, which, however, derived some appearance of strength from disdain. "'Oh, yes,' cried Mr. Sampson, with bitterness. "'Thus it ever is. I never—' "'If you mean to say—' Miss Lavvy cut him short. "'That you never brought up a young gazelle. You may save yourself the trouble, because nobody in this carriage supposes that you ever did. We know you better.' "'As if this were a home thrust.' "'Lavinia,' returned Mr. Sampson, in a dismal vein, "'I did not mean to say so. What I did mean to say was that I never expected to retain my favourite place in this family, after fortune shed her beams upon it. Why do you take me?' said Mr. Sampson, to the glittering halls with which I can never compete, and then taunt me with my moderate salary. Is it generous? Is it kind?' The stately lady, Mrs. Wolfer, perceiving her opportunity of delivering a few remarks from the throne, here took up the altercation. "'Mr. Sampson,' she began, "'I cannot permit you to misrepresent the intentions of a child of mine.' "'Let him alone, ma.' Miss Lavvy interposed with haughtiness. "'It is indifferent to me what he says or does.' "'Nay, Lavinia,' quoth Mrs. Wilfer, "'this touches the blood of the family. If Mr. George Sampson attributes even to my youngest daughter—' "'I don't see why you should use the word even, ma,' Miss Lavvy interposed, "'because I am quite as important as any of the others.' "'Peace,' said Mrs. Wilfer solemnly, "'I repeat—' If Mr. George Sampson attributes to my youngest daughter grovelling motives, he attributes them equally to the mother of my youngest daughter. That mother repudiates them and demands of Mr. George Sampson, as a youth of honour, what he would have. I may be mistaken, nothing is more likely, but Mr. George Sampson, proceeded Mrs. Wilfer, majestically waving her gloves, appears to me to be seated in a first-class equipage. Mr. George Sampson appears to me to be on his way, by his own admission, to a residence that may be termed palatial. Mr. George Sampson appears to me to be invited to participate in the—shall I say—the uh, elevation which has descended on the family with which he is ambitious. Shall I say to mingle? Whence, then, this tone on Mr. Sampson's part? It is only, ma'am. Mr. Sampson explained, in exceedingly low spirits, "'because, in a pecuniary sense, I am painfully conscious of my unworthiness. Lavinia is now highly connected. Can I hope that she will still remain the same Lavinia as of old? And is it not pardonable if I feel sensitive when I see a disposition on her part to take me up short?' "'If you are not satisfied with your position, sir,' observed Miss Lavinia, with much politeness, "'we can set you down at any turning you may please to indicate to my sister's coachman.' "'Dearest Lavinia,' urged Mr. Sampson pathetically, "'I adore you.' "'Then, if you can't do it in a more agreeable manner,' returned the young lady, "'I wish you wouldn't.' "'I also,' 
pursued Mr. Sampson, "'respect you, ma'am, to an extent which must ever be below your merits, I am well aware, but still up to an uncommon mark. Bear with a wretch, Lavinia, bear with a wretch, ma'am, who feels the noble sacrifices you make for him, but is goaded almost to madness.' Mr. Sampson slapped his forehead. "'When he thinks of competing with the rich and influential—' "'When you have to compete with the rich and influential, it will probably be mentioned to you,' said Miss Lavvy, "'in good time. At least it will, if the case is my case.' Mr. Sampson immediately expressed his fervent opinion that this was more than human, and was brought upon his knees at Miss Lavinia's feet. It was the crowning addition, indispensable to the full enjoyment of both mother and daughter, to bear Mr. Sampson, a grateful captive, into the glittering halls he had mentioned, and to parade him through the same, at once a living witness of their glory, and a bright instance of their condescension. Ascending the staircase, Miss Lavinia permitted him to walk at her side, with the air of saying, Notwithstanding all these surroundings, I am yours as yet, George. How long it may last is another question, but I am yours as yet. She also benignantly intimated to him, aloud, the nature of the objects upon which he looked, and to which he was unaccustomed, as, "'Exotics, George! An aviary, George! An omelou clock, George!' and the like, while through the whole of the decorations Mrs. Wilfer led the way with the bearing of a savage chief, who would feel himself compromised by manifesting the slightest token of surprise or admiration. Indeed, the bearing of this impressive woman throughout the day was a pattern to all impressive women under similar circumstances. She renewed the acquaintance of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, as if Mr. and Mrs. Boffin had said of her what she had said of them, and as if time alone could quite wear her injury out. She regarded every servant who approached her as her sworn enemy, expressly intending to offer her affronts with the dishes, and to pour forth outrages on her moral feelings from the decanters. She sat erect at the table, on the right hand of her son-in-law, as half-suspecting poison in the viands, and as bearing up with native force of character against other deadly ambushes. Her carriage towards Bella was as a carriage towards a young lady of good position whom she had met in society a few years ago. Even when, slightly thawing under the influence of sparkling champagne, she related to her son-in-law some passages of domestic interest concerning her papa, she infused into the narrative such arctic suggestions of her having been an unappreciated blessing to mankind, since her papa's days, and also of that gentleman's having been a frosty impersonation of a frosty race, as struck cold to the very soles of the feet of the hearers. The inexhaustible being produced, staring and evidently intending a weak and washy smile shortly, no sooner beheld her than it was stricken spasmodic and inconsolable. When she took her leave at last, it would have been hard to say whether it was with the air of going to the scaffold herself, or of leaving the inmates of the house for immediate execution. Yet John Harmon enjoyed it all merrily and told his wife, when he and she were alone, that her natural ways had never seemed so dearly natural as beside this foil, and that although he did not dispute her being her father's daughter, he should ever remain steadfast in the faith that she could not be her mother's. This visit was, as has been said, a grand event. Another event, not grand but deemed in the house a special one, occurred at about the same period, and this was the first interview between Mr. Sloppy and Miss Wren. 
the doll's dressmaker, being at work for the inexhaustible upon a full-dressed doll some two sizes larger than that young person, Mr. Sloppy undertook to call for it, and did so. "'Come in, sir,' said Miss Wren, who was working at her bench. "'And who might you be?' Mr. Sloppy introduced himself by name and buttons. "'Oh, indeed!' cried Jenny. "'Ah! I've been looking forward to knowing you. I heard of your distinguishing yourself.' "'Did you, Miss?' grinned Sloppy. "'I'm sure I'm glad to hear it, but I don't know how.' "'Pitching somebody into a mud-cart,' said Miss Wren. "'Oh, that way!' cried Sloppy. "'Yes, Miss,' and threw back his head and laughed. "'Bless us!' exclaimed Miss Wren, with a start. "'Don't open your mouth as wide as that young man, or it'll catch so, and not shut again some day.' Mr. Sloppy opened it, if possible, wider, and kept it open until his laugh was out. "'Why, you're like the giant,' said Miss Wren, "'when he came home in the land of Beanstalk, and wanted Jack for supper.' "'Was he good-looking, Miss?' asked Sloppy. "'No,' said Miss Wren. "'Ugly.' Her visitor glanced round the room, which had many comforts in it now, that had not been in it before, and said, "'This is a pretty place, Miss.' "'Glad you think so, sir,' returned Miss Wren. "'And what do you think of me?' The honesty of Mr. Sloppy being severely taxed by the question, he twisted a button, grinned, and faltered. "'Out with it,' said Miss Wren, with an arch look. "'Don't you think me a queer little comicality?' In shaking her head at him, after asking the question, she shook her hair down. cried Sloppy, in a burst of admiration. "'What a lot! And what a colour!' Miss Wren, with her usual expressive hitch, went on with her work, but, left her hair as it was, not displeased by the effect it had made. "'You don't live here alone, do you, Miss?' asked Sloppy. "'No,' said Miss Wren, with a chop. "'Live here with my fairy godmother.' "'With?' Mr. Sloppy couldn't make it out. "'With who did you say, Miss?' "'Well,' replied Miss Wren, more seriously, "'with my second father, or with my first, for that matter.' And she shook her head, and drew a sigh. "'If you had known a poor child I used to have here,' she added, "'you'd have understood me. But you didn't, and you can't. All the better.' "'You must have been taught a long time.' said Sloppy, glancing at the array of dolls in hand. "'Before you came to work so neatly, Miss, and with such a pretty taste.' "'Never was taught a stitch, young man,' returned the dressmaker, tossing her head. "'Just gobbled and gobbled, till I found out how to do it. Badly enough at first, but better now.' "'And here have I,' said Sloppy, in something of a self-reproachful tone, "'been a-learning and a-learning, and here has Mr. Boffin been a-paying and paying ever so long.' "'I've heard what your trade is,' observed Miss Wren. "'It's cabinet-making.' Mr. Sloppy nodded. "'Now it amounts is done with it is. "'I'll tell you what, Miss, I should like to make you something.' "'Much obliged. But what?' "'I could make you,' said Sloppy, surveying the room, 
I could make you a handy set of nests to lay the dolls in, or I could make you a handy little set of drawers to keep your silks and your threads and scraps in, or I could turn you a rare handle for that crutch-stick if it belongs to him you call your father. It belongs to me, returned the little creature, with a quick flush of her face and neck. I am lame. Poor Sloppy flushed too, for there was an instinctive delicacy behind his buttons, and his own hand had struck it. He said, perhaps the best thing in the way of amends that could be said, I'm very glad it's yours, because I'd rather ornament it for you and for anyone else. Please, may I look at it? Miss Wren was in the act of handing it to him over the bench, when she paused. "'But you had better see me use it,' she said sharply. "'This is the way. Hoppity kickity, peg, peg, peg. Not pretty, is it? "'It seems to me that you hardly want it at all,' said Sloppy. The little dressmaker sat down again, and gave it into his hand, saying, with that better look upon her, and with a smile, "'Thank you. "'And as concerning the nests in your jaws,' said Sloppy, after measuring the handle on his sleeve, and softly standing the stick aside against the wall, "'why, it would be a real pleasure to me. "'I've here tell that you can sing most beautiful, "'and I should be better paid with a song and with any money, "'for I always love the likes of that, "'and often give Mrs. Higdon and Johnny a comic song myself with spoken in it, "'though that's not your sort, I'll wager.' "'You are a very kind young man,' returned the dressmaker. "'A really kind young man. I accept your offer. I suppose he won't mind,' she added as an afterthought, shrugging her shoulders. "'And if he does, he may.' "'Meaning him that you call your father, miss?' asked Sloppy. "'No, no,' replied Miss Wren. "'Him, him, him.' "'Him, him, him,' repeated Sloppy, staring about as if for him. "'Im, who is coming to court and marry me,' returned Miss Wren. "'Dear me, how slow you are!' "'Oh, him,' said Sloppy, and seemed to turn thoughtful and a little troubled. "'I never thought of him. When is he coming, Miss?' "'What a question!' cried Miss Wren. "'How should I know?' "'Where is he coming from, Miss?' "'Why, goodness gracious, how can I tell?' He is coming from somewhere or other, I suppose, and he is coming some day or other, I suppose. I don't know any more about him at present. This tickled Mr. Sloppy as an extraordinarily good joke, and he threw back his head and laughed with measureless enjoyment. At the sight of him laughing in that absurd way, the doll dressmaker laughed very heartily indeed, so they both laughed till they were tired. There, there, there said Miss Wren. For goodness sake, stop, giant, or I shall be swallowed up alive before I know it. And at this minute you haven't said what you've come for. I have come for little Miss Harmonge's doll, said Sloppy. I thought as much, remarked Miss Wren. And here is little Miss Harmonge's doll waiting for you. She's folded up in silver paper, you see, as if she was wrapped from head to foot in new banknotes. Take care of her, and there's my hand, and thank you again. I'll take 
more care of her than if she was a gold image said sloppy and there's both my hands miss and i'll soon come back again but the greatest event of all in the new life of mr and mrs john harmon was a visit from mr and mrs eugene wrayburn sadly wan and worn was the once gallant eugene and walked resting on his wife's arm and leaning heavily upon a stick but he was daily growing stronger and better and it was declared by the medical attendants that he might not be much disfigured by and by it was a grand event indeed when mr and mrs eugene wrayburn came to stay at mr and mrs john harmon's house where by the way mr and mrs boffin exquisitely happy and daily cruising about to look at shops were likewise staying indefinitely to mr eugene wrayburn in confidence did mrs john harmon impart what she had known of the state of his wife's affections in his reckless time and to mrs john harmon in confidence did mr eugene wrayburn impart that please god she should see how his wife had changed him i make no protestations said eugene who does who means them i have made a resolution but would you believe bella interposed his wife coming to resume her nurse's place at his side for he never got on well without her that our wedding day he told me he almost thought the best thing he could do was to die as i didn't do it lizzie said eugene i'll do that better thing you suggested for your sake that same afternoon Eugene, lying on his couch in his own room upstairs, Lightwood came to chat with him, while Bella took his wife out for a ride. Nothing short of force will make her go, Eugene had said, so Bella had playfully forced her. "'Dear old fellow,' Eugene began with Lightwood, reaching up his hand, "'you couldn't have come at a better time, for my mind is full, and I want to empty it.' First, of my present, before I touch upon my future. M. R. F., who is a much younger cavalier than I, and a professed admirer of beauty, was so affable as to remark the other day. He paid us a visit uh, of two days up the river there, and much objected to the accommodation of the hotel, that Lizzie ought to have her portrait painted which, coming from M.R.F., may be considered equivalent to a melodramatic blessing. "'You are getting well,' said Mortimer, with a smile. "'Really,' said Eugene, "'I mean it. When M.R.F. said that, and followed it up by rolling the claret, for which he called, and I paid, in his mouth, and saying, "'My dear son, why do you drink this trash?' It was tantamount in him to a paternal benediction on our union, accompanied with a gush of tears. The coolness of M.R.F. is not to be measured by ordinary standards. "'True enough,' said Lightwood. "'That's all,' pursued Eugene, "'that I shall ever hear from M.R.F. on the subject, and he will continue to saunter through the world with his hat on one side.' My marriage being thus solemnly recognised at the family altar, I have no further trouble on that score. Next, you really have done wonders for me, Mortimer, in easing my 
money perplexities, and with such a guardian and steward beside me as the preserver of my life. I am hardly strong yet, you see, for I am not man enough to refer to her without a trembling voice. She is so inexpressibly dear to me, Mortimer. The little that I can call my own will be more than it ever has been. It need be more, for you know what it always has been in my hands. Nothing. Worse than nothing, I fancy, Eugene. My own small income, I devoutly wish that my grandfather had left it to the ocean rather than to me, has been an effective something in the way of preventing me from turning to at anything. And I think yours has been much the same. There spake the voice of wisdom, said Eugene. We are shepherds both. In turning to, at last, we turn to in earnest. Let us say no more of that for a few years to come. Now, I have an idea, Mortimer, of taking myself and my wife to one of the colonies, and working at my vocation there. I should be lost without you, Eugene, but you may be right. No, said Eugene emphatically, not right. Wrong. He said it with such a lively, almost angry flash, that Mortimer showed himself greatly surprised. You think this thumped head of mine is excited? Eugene went on with a high look. Not so. Believe me. I can say to you, of the healthful music of my pulse, what Hamlet said of his. My blood is up, but wholesomely up, when I think of it. Tell me, shall I turn coward to Lizzie, and sneak away with her, as if I were ashamed of her? Where would your friend's part in this world be, Mortimer, if she had turned coward to him, and on a measurably better occasion? Honourable and staunch, said Lightwood, and yet, Eugene, and yet, what, Mortimer? And yet, are you sure that you might not feel, for her sake, I say for her sake, any slight coldness towards her on the part of society? Oh, <laughs> you and I may well stumble at the word, returned Eugene, laughing. Do we mean our tippins? Perhaps we do, said Mortimer, laughing also. Faith, we do, returned Eugene, with great animation. We may hide behind the bush and beat about it, but we do. Now, my wife is something nearer to my heart, Mortimer, than Tippins is, and I owe her a little more than I owe to Tippins, and I am rather prouder of her than I ever was of Tippins. Therefore, I will fight it out to the last gasp, with her and for her, here in the open field. When I hide her, or strike for her, faint-heartedly, in a hole or a corner, do you, whom I love next best upon earth, tell me what I shall most righteously deserve to be told, that she would have done well to turn me over with her foot that night, when I lay bleeding to death, and spat in my dastard face. The glow that shone upon him as he spoke the words, so irradiated his features, that he looked for the time as though he had never been mutilated. His friend responded as Eugene would have had him respond, and they discoursed of the future until Lizzie came back. After resuming her place at his side, and tenderly touching his hands on his head, she said, 
Eugene, dear, you made me go out, but I ought to have stayed with you. You are more flushed than you have been for many days. What have you been doing?' "'Nothing,' replied Eugene, "'but looking forward to your coming back.' "'And talking to Mr. Lightwood,' said Lizzie, turning to him with a smile, "'but it cannot have been society that disturbed you?' "'Faith, my dear love,' retorted Eugene, in his old airy manner, as he laughed and kissed her, I rather think it was society, though." The word ran so much in Mortimer Lightwood's thoughts, as he went home to the temple that night, that he resolved to take a look at society, which he had not seen for a considerable period. End of Book Four, Chapter Sixteen Book Four, Chapter Seventeen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning. Chapter Seventeen, The Voice of Society. Behoves Mortimer Lightwood, therefore, to answer a dinner-card from Mr. and Mrs. Veneering, requesting the honour, and to signify that Mr. Mortimer Lightwood will be happy to have the other honour. The Veneerings have been, as usual, indefatigably dealing dinner-cards to society, and whoever desires to take a hand had best be quick about it, for it is written in the books of the insolvent fates that Veneering shall make a resounding smash next week. Yes, having found out the clue to that great mystery how people can contrive to live beyond their means, and having overjobbed his jobberies as legislator, deputed to the universe by the pure electors of pocket breeches, it shall come to pass next week that Veneering will accept the Chiltern Hundreds, that the legal gentleman in Britannia's confidence will again accept the pocket breeches thousands, and that the Veneerings will retire to Calais, there to live on Mrs. Veneering's diamonds in which Mr. Veneering, as a good husband, has from time to time invested considerable sums. And to relate to Neptune and others how that, before Veneering retired from Parliament, the House of Commons was composed of himself, and the six hundred and fifty-seven dearest and oldest friends he had in the world. It shall likewise come to pass, at as nearly as possible the same period, that society will discover that it always did despise Veneering and distrust Veneering, and that when it went to Veneering's to dinner it always had misgivings, though very secretly at the time, it would seem, and in a perfectly private and confidential manner. The next week's book of the insolvent fates, however, being not yet opened, there is the usual rush to the Veneerings, of the people who go to their house to dine with one another, and not with them. There is Lady Tippins, there are Podsnap the Great, and Mrs. Podsnap, there is Twemlow, there are Buffer, Boots, and Brewer. There is the Contractor, who is Providence to five hundred thousand men. There is the Chairman, travelling three thousand miles per week. There is the Brilliant Genius, who turned the shares into that remarkably exact sum of three hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds, no shillings, and no pence. To whom add Mortimer Lightwood, coming in among them with the resumption of his old languid air, founded on Eugene, 
and belonging to the days when he told the story of the man from somewhere. That fresh fairy, Tippins, all but screams at sight of her false swain. She summons the deserter to her with her fan, but the deserter, predetermined not to come, talks Britain with Podsnap. Podsnap always talks Britain, and talks as if he were a sort of private watchman employed in the British interests against the rest of the world. "'We know what Russia means, sir,' says Podsnap. "'We know what France wants. We see what America is up to. But we know what England is. That's enough for us.' However, when dinner is served, and Lightwood drops into his old place over against Lady Tippins, she can be fended off no longer. "'Long banished Robinson Crusoe,' says the charmer, exchanging salutations. "'How did you leave the island?' "'Thank you,' says Lightwood. "'It made no complaint of being in pain anywhere.' "'Say, how did you leave the savages?' asks Lady Tippins. "'They were becoming civilised when I left one Fernandez,' says Lightwood. "'At least they were eating one another, which looked like it.' "'Tormentor,' returns the dear young creature, "'you know what I mean, and you trifle with my impatience. Tell me something immediately about the married pair. You were at the wedding?' "'Was I, by the by?' Mortimer pretends at great leisure to consider. Oh, so I was. How was the bride dressed? In rowing costume? Mortimer looks gloomy, and declines to answer. I hope she steered herself, skiffed herself, paddled herself, larboarded and starboarded herself, or whatever the technical term may be to the ceremony, proceeds the playful Tippins. However she got to it, she graced it, says Mortimer. Lady Tippins, with a skittish little scream, attracts the general attention. Graced it! Take care of me if I faint for daring. He means to tell us that a horrid female waterman is graceful. Pardon me. I mean to tell you nothing, Lady Tippins, replies Lightwood and keeps his word by eating his dinner with a show of the utmost indifference. "'You shall not escape me in this way, you morose backwoodsman,' retorts Lady Tippins. "'You shall not evade the question to screen your friend Eugene, who has made this exhibition of himself. The knowledge shall be brought home to you that such a ridiculous affair is condemned by the voice of society.' "'My dear Mrs. Veneering, do let us resolve ourselves into a committee of the whole house on the subject.' Mrs. Veneering, always charmed by this rattling sylph, cries, "'Oh, yes! Do let us resolve ourselves into a committee of the whole house. So delicious!' Veneering says, "'As many as are of that opinion, say I. Contrary, no, the eyes have it.' but nobody takes the slightest notice of this joke. "'Now I am chairwoman of committees,' cries Lady Tippins. "'What spirits she has!' exclaims Mrs. Veneering, to whom likewise nobody attends. "'And this,' pursues the sprightly one, "'is a committee of the whole house to, what you may call it, elicit, 
I suppose, the voice of society. The question before the committee is, whether a young man of very fair family, good appearance, and uh, some talent, makes a fool or a wise man of himself in marrying a female waterman turned factory girl. Hardly so, I think, the stubborn Mortimer strikes in. I take the question to be, whether such a man as you describe, Lady Tippins, does right or wrong in marrying a brave woman, I say nothing of her beauty, who has saved his life with a wonderful energy and address, whom he knows to be virtuous, and possessed of remarkable qualities, whom he has long admired, and who is deeply attached to him. But, excuse me, says Potsnap, with his temper and his shirt-collar about equally rumpled, was this young woman ever a female waterman? Never. But she sometimes rode in a boat with her father, I believe. General sensation against the young woman. Brewer shakes his head. Boots shakes his head. Buffer shakes his head. And now, Mr. Lightwood, was she ever, pursues Potsnap, with his indignation rising high into those hairbrushes of his, a factory girl? Never. But she had some employment in a paper mill, I believe. General sensation repeated. Brewer says, Oh, dear. Boots says, Oh, dear. Buffer says, Oh, dear. All in a rumbling tone of protest. Then all I have to say is this, returns Podsnap, putting the thing away with his right arm, that my gorge rises against such a marriage, that it offends and disgusts me, that it makes me sick, and that I desire to know no more about it. Now I wonder— thinks Mortimer, amused, whether you are the voice of society. "'Hear, hear, hear!' cries Lady Tippins. "'Your opinion of this mess-alliance, honourable colleagues of the honourable member who has just sat down?' Mrs. Podsnap is of opinion that in these matters there should be an equality of station and fortune and that a man accustomed to society should look out for a woman accustomed to society and capable of bearing her part in it with an ease and elegance of carriage that mrs podsnap stops there delicately intimating that every such man should look out for a fine woman as nearly resembling herself as he may hope to discover now i wonder thinks mortimer whether you are the voice lady tippins Next canvasses the contractor of five hundred thousand power. It appears to this potentate that what the man in question should have done would have been to buy the young woman a boat and a small annuity, and set her up for herself. These things are a question of beefsteaks and porter. You buy the young woman a boat. Very good. You buy her at the same time a small annuity. You speak of that annuity in pounds sterling but it is in reality so many pounds of beefsteaks, and so many pints of porter. On the one hand, the young woman has the boat. On the other hand, she consumes so many pounds of beefsteaks, and so many pints of porter. Those beefsteaks, and that porter, are the fuel to that young woman's engine. She derives therefrom a certain amount of power to row the boat. That power will produce so much money. You add that to the small annuity, and thus you get at the young woman's income. That, it seems to the contractor, is the way of looking at it. 
The fair enslaver, having fallen into one of her gentle sleeps during the last exposition, nobody likes to wake her. Fortunately, she comes awake of herself, and puts the question to the wandering chairman. The wanderer can only speak of the case as if it were his own. If such a young woman, as the young woman described, had saved his own life, he would have been very much obliged to her, wouldn't have married her, and would have got her a berth in an electric telegraph office where young women answer very well. What does the genius of the three hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds, no shillings and no pence, think? He can't say what he thinks, without asking, had the young woman any money? No, says Lightwood, in an uncompromising voice. No money. Madness and moonshine is then the compressed verdict of the genius. A man may do anything lawful for money, but for no money, bosh. What does Boots say? Boots says he wouldn't have done it under twenty thousand pound. What does Brewer say? Brewer says what Boots says. What does Buffer say? Buffer says he knows a man who married a bathing-woman, and bolted. Lady Tippins fancies she has collected the suffrages of the whole committee, nobody dreaming of asking the veneerings for their opinion, when, looking round the table through her eyeglass, she perceives Mr. Twemlow, with his hand to his forehead. Oh, good gracious, my Twemlow forgotten, my dearest, my own, what is his vote? Tremlow has the air of being ill at ease, as he takes his hand from his forehead and replies, "'I am disposed to think,' says he, "'that this is a question of the feelings of a gentleman.' "'A gentleman can have no feelings who contract such a marriage,' flushes Podsnap. "'Pardon me, sir,' says Tremlow, rather less mildly than usual. I don't agree with you. If this gentleman's feelings of gratitude, of respect, of admiration and affection induced him, as I presume they did, to marry this lady— This lady? echoes Podsnap. Sir, returns Tremlow, with his wristbands bristling a little, you repeat the word. I repeat the word. This lady. What else would you call her, if the gentleman were present?" This being somewhat in the nature of a poser for Podsnap, he merely waves it away with a speechless wave. "'I say,' resumes Tremlow, "'if such feelings on the part of this gentleman induce this gentleman to marry this lady, I think he is the greater gentleman for the action, and makes her the greater lady. I beg to say that when I used the word gentleman, I use it in the sense in which the degree may be attained by any man. The feelings of a gentleman I hold sacred, and I confess I am not comfortable when they are made the subject of sport or general discussion. "'I should like to know,' sneers Podsnap, "'whether your noble relation would be of your opinion.' "'Mr. Podsnap,' retorts Tremlow, "'permit me. He might be, or he might not be. I cannot say. But—' 
I could not allow even him to dictate to me on a point of great delicacy, on which I feel very strongly. Somehow a canopy of wet blanket seems to descend upon the company, and Lady Tippins was never known to turn so very greedy or so very cross. Mortimer Lightwood alone brightens. He has been asking himself, as to every other member of the committee in turn, I wonder whether you are the voice. But he does not ask himself the question after Twemlow has spoken, and he glances at Twemlow's direction as if he were grateful. When the company disperses, by which time Mr. and Mrs. Veneering have had quite as much as they want of the honour, and the guests have had quite as much as they want of the other honour, Mortimer sees Twemlow home, shakes hands with him cordially at parting, and fares to the temple gaily. End of Book Four, Chapter Seventeen. Postscript in lieu of preface of our mutual friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our mutual friend by Charles Dickens. Postscript. When I devised this story, I foresaw the likelihood that a class of readers and commentators would suppose that I was at great pains to conceal exactly what I was at great pains to suggest, namely, that Mr. John Harmon was not slain, and that Mr. John Rokesmith was he. Pleasing myself with the idea that the supposition might in part arise out of some ingenuity in the story, and thinking it worth while, in the interest of art, to hint to an audience that an artist, of whatever denomination, may perhaps be trusted to know what he is about in his vocation, if they will concede him a little patience, I was not alarmed by the anticipation. To keep for a long time unsuspected, yet always working itself out, another purpose originating in that leading incident, and turning it to a pleasant and useful account at last, was at once the most interesting and the most difficult part of my design. Its difficulty was much enhanced by the mode of publication, for it would be very unreasonable to expect that many readers, pursuing a story in portions from month to month through nineteen months, will, until they have it before them complete, perceive the relations of its finer threads to the whole pattern, which is always before the eyes of the story-weaver at his loom. Yet that I hold the advantages of the mode of publication to outweigh its disadvantages may be easily believed of one who revived it in the Pickwick papers after long disuse, and has pursued it ever since. There is sometimes an odd disposition in this country to dispute as improbable in fiction what are the commonest experiences in fact. Therefore I note here, though it may not be at all necessary, that there are hundreds of will-cases, as they are called, far more remarkable than that fancied in this book, and that the stores of the prerogative office teem with instances of testators who have made, changed, contradicted, hidden, forgotten, left cancelled, and left uncancelled, each many more wills than were ever made by the elder Mr. Harmon of Harmony Jail. In my social experiences, since Mrs. Betty Higdon came upon the scene and left it, I have found circumlocutional champions disposed to be warm with me on the subject of my view of the poor law. My friend, Mr. Bounderby, 
could never see any difference between leaving the Coketown hands, exactly as they were, and requiring them to be fed with turtle soup and venison out of gold spoons. Idiotic propositions of a parallel nature have been freely offered for my acceptance, and I have been called upon to admit that I would give poor law relief to anybody, anywhere, anyhow. Putting this nonsense aside, I have observed a suspicious tendency in the champions to divide into two parties, the one contending that there are no deserving poor who prefer death by slow starvation and bitter weather to the mercies of some relieving officers and some union-houses, the other admitting that there are such poor, but denying that they have any cause or reason for what they do. The records in our newspapers, the late exposure by the Lancet, and the common sense and senses of common people, furnish too abundant evidence against both defences. But, that my view of the poor law may not be mistaken or misrepresented, I will state it. I believe there has been in England, since the days of the Stuarts, no law so often infamously administered, no law so often openly violated, no law habitually so ill-supervised. In the majority of the shameful cases of disease and death from destitution that shock the public and disgrace the country, the illegality is quite equal to the inhumanity, and known language could say no more of their lawlessness. On Friday the ninth of June, in the present year, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, in their manuscript dress of receiving Mr. and Mrs. Lammle at breakfast, were on the south-eastern railway with me in a terribly destructive accident. When I had done what I could to help others, I climbed back into my carriage, nearly turned over a viaduct, and caught a slant upon the turn, to extricate the worthy couple. They were much soiled, but otherwise unhurt. The same happy result attended Miss Bella Wilfer on her wedding-day, and Mr. Riderhood inspecting Bradley Headstone's red neckerchief as he lay asleep. I remember, with devout thankfulness, that I can never be much nearer parting company with my readers for ever, than I was then, until there shall be written against my life the two words with which I have this day closed this book. The End September 2nd, 1865 End of Postscript End of Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens Recorded by Mill Nicholson Website www.act2sc3.com Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.